0: Well, if you would, turn with me once again to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're nearing the end of the letter. We're looking this evening at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. This is a very lengthy chapter about a wonderful subject, isn't it? About the resurrection. And I have to say, there is always some speculation as to what the resurrection body will be like. Be honest. If you're like me, sometimes you wonder... Is heaven going to be like this? Are we going to be like that? What's our body going to be like in different ways? We kind of speculate and we wonder, don't we? But the question that Paul is encountering in the beginning of this passage is not just a question about speculating what the body will be like. This is actually a question from someone who would spurn the doctrine of the resurrection, particularly pointing back to verse 12, where we read Paul saying, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In the church in Corinth were evidently some individuals who were questioning whether there really was a resurrection. Now, this might seem odd in your ears because the whole whole point of the church is by understanding that Jesus died, was buried, and raised again from the dead and ascended into heaven. Apart from those truths, there's no reason for the church to exist. But Paul is addressing that, and even in churches today, there are those who would deny the resurrection. So here, in this passage, is Paul's teaching about the resurrection body. This is the question that they have. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And here is Paul's answer. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he, he, as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven as was the man of dust so also are those who are of dust and as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now there's some heavy teaching in there and some difficult things to understand but let us ask the Lord to bless this time together that we might hear his word. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this word with hearts to understand and ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to see the wonderful truths of your scripture with eyes of faith. And Lord, remind us once again that you are God of heaven and earth and that you are the God who can raise even the dead to life. Lord, we pray this time together would be a blessing to us, encouraging to us, but in the end, of all things, glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, speaking of those who might ask a question like this, I can't help but think of a man that I knew who has now deceased. His name was Lloyd. And this particular man uh, would come to our church, in one of the churches I served, and yet he had certain doctrines of the Scripture that he did not agree with and he spurned. And I remember one time after worship, him coming out of the worship service and him asking one of our elders, so what color do you think the Holy Spirit is? Is he blue? And the question that he was asking, it sounds silly, it sounds kind of demeaning, and it was intended to be that way. He was ridiculing the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and he was ridiculing many of the biblical doctrines that we taught in our church according to scriptures. And this is the tone or the idea by which this person might ask this question. Now, it's possible that there really is a, a, a someone in the Corinthian church that would ask this question. It's also possible that Paul, recognizing that some in the church were spurning this doctrine of resurrection, might ask this question. And so he asked it. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, this was not asked in a sense of curiosity. This was asked in a sense of unbelief. And so Paul, turning the tables, calls this individual a fool. In in essence, the word here that is said in verse 38, it doesn't say, you foolish person. It actually says, literally, fool you. And then it reminds us that this person who is denying the resurrection... Is foolish. Now, that sounds a little harsh, but when you think about it, it's really a true statement. Because if they are in the church, then they should believe the resurrection. If they don't believe the resurrection, why are they in the church? And so here he's reminding them the whole understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ rests on the fact of the resurrection. The early part of this chapter, Paul had been saying... There are all kinds of witnesses, over 500 of them, many of them living at the time this letter was written, that can testify to the truth that Jesus is raised from the dead. And it's based on that truth that the church stands or falls. So here he's saying, if you don't believe the resurrection, and of course, (coughs) in this case, asking the questions, so what kind of body are we going to have after all, in an unbelieving fashion, It's mere foolishness. So here is how Paul handles this. First of all, he gives an analogy. This is verses 35 through 37. He says this, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So here he says this, What is sown must die in order to be quickened or that is to be made alive. And of course, if you know anything about uh, biology or about uh, particularly uh, agriculture and sowing seeds, then you know that this is the case. A seed must die in essence in order to be made alive into a plant. When you plant that seed in the ground, uh, it, it has to die in the ground there And then it becomes a beautiful plant with flowers and leaves and perhaps bearing fruit. And so there he says, again, what you sow is not the body that is to be. So the body to be, or that is what it will become, is not what's sown. In other words, when we place that dead body in the ground, when someone dies in this life and we bury that body, we're not burying their resurrected body. We're burying their body which is like the seed. It has died and now will be made into something much greater or more wonderful. And so he says, a bare kernel is sown like wheat. So here it is, uh, this analogy about uh, the seed and the body. Uh, I have to say my father was a real gardener and I did not get the gardening gene perhaps because it was such hard work and I remember all the hours spent husking corn and shelling peas and snapping beans and picking strawberries and digging up potatoes and looking at the pumpkins in the garden, all those things. But I remember the wonder of planting those seeds. Perhaps you remember it. We forget that sometimes when we, we just know how this works. We remember that there are these little seeds that we place in the ground, and they don't look like much, do they? In fact, uh, some of these seeds are uh, part of the plant that has dropped on the ground or has been uh, discarded by the plant. And as it falls into that ground and is watered and fertilized and all those things, what happens that seed begins to sprout and it begins to grow and it begins to bear leaves and in the end the fruit of whatever plant it is. You see Paul is saying this much like Jesus did in John chapter 12 that God can make even dead bodies something wonderful. And just as a seed dies in the ground and becomes a wonderful beautiful plant so it is that we... Our dead bodies, buried in the ground, at the last day God will make alive again, quickened, and we will be made into the glorious bodies that God will give us at the resurrection. Perhaps this is best illustrated in a place in Ezekiel chapter 37 that we read a couple weeks ago when there were these bones buried out in the desert, and Ezekiel the prophet was told by God, go and prophesy to those bones, and lo and behold, as he prophesied, they came together, they grew sinews and muscle, (coughs) and then God said to prophesy again, and the breath of life was placed into them, and they became a living, breathing army. Uh, This is what God can do with the dead. And so here he says, God can do just as he does with plants, so he can do with our bodies. And then we get to verses 38 through 41, and we get kind of a science lesson, don't we? Uh, We get this idea of classifications of bodies. Uh, Here are the body classifications. To each seed, he says, it has its own body. In other words, if we plant a tomato seed, we're not going to get pepper plants. We're going to get tomato plants. If we plant corn seeds, uh, we're not going to get a potato. We're going to get corn. So to each kind, there is a body. He says it's the same this way with the flesh. And then he begins to classify them, first the natural bodies that we see every day. Humans, animals, birds, and fish. He says here, not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for each of these. And you know, why is he saying this? He's saying this to illustrate that just as we see in everyday biological truths, so it is with the creation of God, both the new and the old. And so here he says, you see it every day, each has its own kind. If we were to go back to the book of Genesis, we would see that God created kinds of animals. God made it so that there were kinds of animals placed on the ark and they were rescued during the flood. So here they are, these natural bodies. But if that wasn't enough, then he talks about what we might call spatial bodies. He begins to talk about the difference between heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. He reminds us that here there are these bodies that are earthly, the things we've already mentioned, humans, animals, birds, fish, and so forth. They're also heavenly bodies. Now, he could have talked about angels or Uh, seraphim or cherubim or others, but instead he talks about the bodies of space that we think about in our science classes. It says here, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. So he classifies them. And in this, he also classifies their glory. There are different kinds of glory, he says. One glory for the sun, another glory for the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Of course, we know that when we see the moon rise or we see the sun rise, they're very different animals, aren't they? Of course, they're not really animals. But, you know, it's common sense. They look different. They have different illumination. And we can look at all the scientific laws and reasons for why the sun is brighter than the moon or the stars twinkle in such a way or one star is uh, is more powerful or more luminescent than another star. And we can look at all these things and see their glory. And so he tells us of all these types. But why does he tell us about these different types of glory? Well, he's basing here common sense, we can call it scientific or observational science, in order to demonstrate to us that the new body is based on the facts that we have in creation all around us. And so then he contrasts the two types of bodies, our mortal body that will die and our resurrected body that will live forever. And here it is. This is one of the great contrasts of Paul's letters. He says here, on the one hand, you have what our mortal bodies are sown as. Here is this seed, in essence, sown uh, as uh, something that will bear life, even though it's going to die. And so here he says, on the one hand, the mortal body is sown corruptible. That's what the word perishable means. We know that when the body rests in the ground, it decays. It corrupts. And so there it is. Uh, It's very simple. All of us have that knowledge. In fact, the one who asked that question, what will the resurrected bodies be like in a churlish way, is basically saying, I know what dead bodies do. I don't see how there can be a resurrection. But he says the resurrected body is raised incorruptible. In other words, this body is different because though the mortal body will corrupt and decay in the grave, the resurrected body will never corrupt or decay. Now, does that mean we won't have wrinkles? I don't know. Sometimes people ask those questions. Does that mean that we won't have age spots on our skin anymore? Maybe. Who knows? Uh, Does that mean we won't get colds and so forth anymore? I think it probably does. Uh, What does that mean? It means that they will be incorruptible. They will not be able to decay in the ground. They will live forever. Then he says they're sown dishonorable. Now, of course, we understand there are all kinds of dishonorable things about our bodies, things we don't like, things in which uh, we certainly don't want to share with others. But he says these resurrected bodies will be raised in glory Here's the comparison from dishonorable to raised in glory. In other words, they will be wonderful in ways that we cannot even comprehend. The next one is sown in weakness. Think of what that can mean. Weakness can mean sickness. Weakness can also mean without strength. And of course, weakness in that they're prone to have diseases and get injured and die and all those other things. Perhaps the weakness may also illustrate some of the weakness of the flesh. That we are prone and tempted in many ways because we have this sin nature. But look how it will be raised. In power. Now, th- this doesn't mean that, hey, we're, we're going to be supermen. And, and we're going to have all this power of the immortal that's illustrated in all these uh, superhero movies that are so popular today. Uh, But it's reminding us that it's by the power of God. And in that power, it's not our power innately that we will have. It's God's power that he has given us. Then it tells us we are sown a natural body. In fact, the interesting word here is the word soul-related, natural body. We are raised a spiritual body. Now, of course... This can be construed the wrong way. This can be the idea that that when we're raised, we only have spiritual bodies. We don't have physical bodies and so forth. But actually, that's a particular theological distinction that Paul is writing against, perhaps with the Greek understanding of the resurrection. But here he's reminding us that we are raised spiritually. In other words, there's a spiritual context here to our resurrected body. Now I have to say, what, what does all this mean? Why does he make this contrast between these two things? He's reminding us that all the things that we see in life that are decaying, that are corrupting, that are, uh, have a tendency to, to die and to be affected by sin in various ways, all of these things will be reversed in such a way we're not going to have to worry about whether we get sick. We're not going to have to worry about whether decay is coming. We we won't have to worry about being weak about so many things. You know, I began to think this week about the mess down in the New Fellowship Hall area. Now, if you're not here during the week, then you don't hear all the pounding and all the things that they do when they're here. They're not here every day, uh, but they're here. And and when they, uh, the first week is probably where they got and accomplished the most because it's the easiest thing to do, and that's to destroy stuff, isn't it? So they go in there and they knock out walls and they knock out uh, different things that are going on through, throughout the, the, that room. So it becomes a, a big empty space. And, and if you go in there during that process you think what a mess. What, what a destructive mess. If somebody's come in here they've left a mess all over the floor. Uh, they've gotten rid of the walls. Uh, it, it looks like it's going to be an uninhabitable space. And this is really what Paul is saying our old human bodies are like, isn't it? They don't really get better, do they? I mean, after all, most of us in here have white hair or gray hair. And so we know that as time goes, what happens to our bodies? You know, our muscles start to atrophy. Our uh, strengths begin to become our weaknesses, our eyes don't see as well, our ears don't hear as well, as the, as the Proverbs tells us, or Ecclesiastes tells us, our, our teeth stop grinding, and we begin less and less to enjoy the things of life because our body has begun this process of decay. And if we look at this body, this was what this body was designed to do because of sin. Now, now God, God didn't design our bodies to decay and die, But because of sin, this is what our bodies will be doing. And yet God says, in the resurrected body, it will all be transformed from corruption to incorruptible, from dishonorable to glory, from weak to power, from the natural body to the spiritual body. There's no comparison to the glory. So when we think about the resurrected body... We think of a body that now is much different because sin has no effect upon it. It is removed. It is gone. And by God's grace, we will live forever. Why is this the case? Well, here he makes the final comparison. The comparison between Adam, the first man, and Christ, as it says here, the second man, or we might say in another place in Scripture, the last man, in a sense. And he says, here's what Adam is. The first man, Adam, became a living soul, a living being. He went from being just dust to being formed together by the power of God and his word, formed into a human being, and then God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. That's what it says in Genesis. It says he was the first man, But he was from earth. In fact, the word here that is described is that he was an earthy man or a man of dust. Isn't that a great way to say it? An earthy man. You know how it is when somebody comes out from a rainstorm uh, and they come in and they're just caked with mud. He says, we are like that caked man. We are earthy. That is who we are. That is our essence is we are in essence An earthy man and those who descend from adam it says that here is what they are like as was the man of dust verse 48 so also are those who are of the dust or who are earthy and so here it is they are earthy like him they are men of dust they're frail of course the scriptures tell us just as we were made from dust to dust we shall return But the other thing it says is they bear the image of this earthy man. Here it is, we are image bearers. And it's interesting here, remember in Genesis it said that man was made in the image of God. But here we are reminded that because of the one we descend from, Adam, we bear the image of Adam. And what image is that? We'll look at that in a moment. But here's the comparison of the second man, Christ. What did Christ become? It says Christ became, he became a quickening spirit or a life-giving spirit according to verse 45. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So in other words, just as Adam was an earthy man and a living soul, so did the first or the last Adam or the last man became a quickening spirit and he was From heaven. He was heavenly. Of course there's all kinds of connotations to this. It could be a reference back to the incarnation. It could be back to the fact that he was descended not by ordinary means. But by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus was not of sin like all of us are. Descending from Adam by ordinary generation. But it says those who are like him are also in this way. Just as those in Adam are earthy. Those who are in Christ are heavenly. Did you know that even right now there is a sense of you that is heavenly because you are in Christ? But when we come to the resurrected body, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, the image of God that we are designed after will now be not because, like Adam, but now like Christ. When I was a young pastor... I was asked from time to time to speak at the chapel service at a local Christian school. In fact, this is the school where Jennifer's parents teach and where her brother is the principal today. In the very first chapel I went to, I thought the best thing I can preach on in my first chapel with high school and middle school students is on the image of God. So I bought one of these little handheld mirrors and I took it with me uh, to the uh, uh, chapel service. And I began teaching about the image of God. And so halfway through uh, the lesson, then I took the mirror and I slammed it against the pulpit and the podium in order to break it to show that when we are in the image of God, it has been marred by our sin. Well, unfortunately, the mirror didn't break. And the only thing that broke on the mirror after hitting it a couple times was the frame of the mirror came off, but the mirror itself didn't break. But what I wanted to show was how when we were made in the image of God, we were made to reflect God's glory. But because of sin, and because we descend from Adam and have a sin nature, what does that image look like now? When we bear the image of Adam, this is the image that is distorted and marred because the image is broken by sin. And so when God looks at us, instead of reflecting back that glory to him, the reflection goes off in different directions so that some of that reflection comes back to us, some of that reflection goes off into the world, but hopefully, maybe, some of that reflection could even go off to God. And so our image that is described here is one of sin and depravity and weakness and corruptibility, but those who are in Christ looking forward to the resurrected body, it says here, they will bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, that image will be restored. The broken pieces of the mirror will be glued back together and smoothed over so that once again, when that mirror is held up to God and our image comes before him, because we are in Christ, the image of Christ reflects back to God in perfection, flawless, incorruptible, in glory, and in power as a spiritual body before God. You see, that is what we're focused on here in this passage. We sometimes sing the song when we think about heaven, when we all get to heaven, what rejoicing there will be. Is that not the case? Now I wish I could say, okay, from this passage I can tell you Uh, this is what your body's going to look like, this is what age you might appear to be, this is how your blemishes or spots will disappear, your hair will look this way, Uh, your body will look this way. I can't do that from this passage. I don't know how it will work. In fact, when I look at the resurrected body of Jesus, I think, wow, there were times when he could evidently disguise himself because they wouldn't recognize him right away. Uh, Does that mean we'll have a same body like that? Or was that a divine quality of Christ? I don't know. I I can look at Jesus' body and say, wow, he appeared in a locked room without going through the door. Does that mean we won't have uh, the necessity of space as a dimension that confines us? You know, I speculated on this as a young man. And I I have to say, I don't know. Was was that God uh, or Jesus's? Uh, you know, divine quality or was that a quality of all the bodies that will be resurrected? I don't know, but I can say this. Our body will be better. It will be glorified. It will now be without sin. It will no longer decay. It will not corrupt in the grave. It will no longer have dishonor, but will have glory. It will no longer have the weaknesses that we struggle with so much. But now there will be power in our bodies. You see, our questions in heaven about our resurrected bodies will either be answered or will be found to be unimportant or obsolete. You see, Paul is addressing this not because he wants to give us all the details of what the resurrected body will be like. He's giving these details to remind us that based on the creation that God has put together, if God can create all things out of nothing... If God can create the process of a seed dying in the ground to become a beautiful plant bearing fruit, how can we possibly doubt the word of God that our dead bodies will be raised in glory at the resurrection? You see, it's all based on the promises that God has kept and the things that have been true throughout time and history. And he's telling us in this passage, the heavenly body. You may have all kinds of questions. You may have all kinds of curiosity but it will be wonderful beyond your imagination. It will be something that you cannot possibly imagine because you are like that dead seed dying in the ground in your physical body. But in Christ, we will live forever in glory and in wonder. Let's ponder that as we go to our homes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Yes, some of them are hard to understand, No, we don't get all the answers of the questions that we might have. You remind us, Lord, that sometimes we get so caught up in the details that we forget the forest for the trees. Lord, remind us of the wonder of the resurrection, that when we are raised, we will be like Jesus. When we are raised, the ravages of sin will be gone and disappear forever. Help us, Lord, to find hope in this, to be encouraged by this and to be assured by the teachings of your word, we pray in Jesus' name.